as you turn over to uh, Philippians 4, we're closing out the, the book of Philippians. We've been in this book for quite a while, I guess, and uh, we're coming to the end of it. And we've come to this last chapter in Paul's letter to the church of Philippi. And it's a new section in, in chapter 4. And we just got done uh, running up through verse 9, and we were sp speaking of how to have stability in your Christian walk, in your Christian lives. And, and uh, a lot of Christians don't have that. And uh, Paul tells us how that we could do that, and we've gone over that for several weeks. But now we want to kind of draw into the section of verses 10 through 19. And, um, you know, it's always encouraging to come together and, and open God's Word and allow Him to speak to our hearts. Yeah, He may use a, uh, a human person to do that sometimes, but uh, it's His Word that we want to speak to our hearts this morning. And um, so we, we pray that you would tune into that. Uh, but we want to take verses 10 through 19 because they're, they're basically one unit of thought. And we're going to talk a little bit about uh, several things as we work our way through this. Not all today, obviously. We'll probably be in here next week as well. Um, but as we begin to explain what God's Word is saying here and what Paul is trying to get across, I think it's, it's going to be very practical in your own lives. Uh, it's something that's, that's going to be, wow, I can apply this very real. Sometimes you get, we get weighed down in theology and you say, well, how does this work in my own personal life? Uh, and it does, it just sometimes you don't see it. But um, this is a very practical portion of Scripture. And um, we're going to be speaking on the subject of contentment. And uh, how many of you here this morning can say, I'm totally 100% content with everything? Okay, not a hand went up. All right, um, and so it's it's kind of a you know one of those things that we all deal with contentment or the lack of contentment almost on a daily basis, and uh, you know our society's just trained us that way. But as we think about that word contentment, um, Paul really kind of tells us what the secret, what his secret of being content is in these several verses. And contentment's a, a very rich word. It's also a biblical word. Um, and the fact the Bible has a lot to say about contentment. Just turn over with me to First um, Timothy chapter six, verse six, and you can just glance at this. And um, uh, Paul uh, tells us there that godliness with contentment in verse six is great gain. Godliness with contentment is great gain. And then if you jump down to verse 8 there, he says, in having food and clothing, let us be content. Uh, the writer of Hebrews, over in uh, chapter 13, verse 5, says, be content with whatever you have. For he said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. The Bible not, not only identifies contentment as a virtue, but it also speaks of being content in our Christian lives as a command. God's Word commands us as believers to be content. Um, you're to be content with whatever you have. You say, yeah, right. Well, it's hard to do, but that's what Scripture says. We're to be content with the food and clothing we have. We're to be content with the wages we receive. We're to be content because, first of all, we understand that utterly and totally and infinitely and supernaturally, God is our resource. And Hebrews says that he will never leave you nor forsake you. And if God is our resource, then God is going to provide everything we need. Notice I said not everything we want. Okay. The difference. But God provides everything we need. And contentment is a virtue. Contentment is a command. And a lot of people don't experience that. I know that in my own life, I'm not content with a lot of things. Most Christians don't experience contentment. And to a degree, um, God wants us to experience contentment more on a daily basis. But, you know, as a society, we, we tend to be very discontent people, don't we? We're just discontent with life a lot of times. Um, and I think the more you have, the more you're discontent. <laughs> that seems how it goes. I mean, you, you read these stories of people who have billions and billions and billions of dollars. They could go anywhere, do anything. They could buy their own little personal island if they wanted to. And sometimes you read stories of these folks and they say, you know what, I'm not content with my life. I have to have more. 
And life has a way of doing that to us. But Paul experienced contentment. And he was a satisfied man. He was a contented man. And turn back to Philippians 4, and I just want to read for us this section of Scripture, verses 10 through 19, because it speaks of his contentment in life, right where he's at, right where God has him. Look at verse 10 with me, just follow along. But I rejoiced in the Lord greatly, that now at last your care for me has flourished again. Though you surely did care, but you lacked opportunity. Not that I speak in regard to need, for I have learned to whatever state that I'm in, to be content. I know how to be abased. I know how to abound. Everywhere and in all things, I have learned both to be full and to be hungry, both to abound and to suffer need. Verse 13, I'm sure we've all memorized this. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Nevertheless, you have done well that you shared in my distress. Now you Philippians know also that in the beginning of the gospel, when I departed from Macedonia, no church shared with me concerning giving and receiving but you alone. For even in Thessalonica, you sent aid once and again for my necessities. Not that I seek the gift, but I seek the fruit that abounds to your account. Indeed, I have all and abound. I am full, having received from Epaphroditus the things that you sent, a, a sweet-smelling aroma, an acceptable sacrifice, well-pleasing to God. And my God well, he'll, he'll supply all your needs according to his riches and glory by Christ Jesus. Now, you read that, and, and that's the words of somebody in life who is content. And he not only shares his own contentment, but I think that we can find some secrets in here and how we can breed that contentment in our own lives, in our own walks. Now, we want to give you a little bit of context here because some of you are just jumping in with us today. But most of this, when we write a letter to someone we deeply love, will include one point or another to express some form of thanks for what they've done. That's just what we do. And that's reasonable. That's common. And that's the case here. That's what the Apostle Paul's doing here. Before he concludes his letter to the Philippians, whom he loved very deeply, he wants to express at some length his gratitude to them for their kindness. And it says there that they've loved him from ever since the beginning, from where it very began, their love for him was there. And recently they had an opportunity to share that love by sending Epaphroditus, and who's mentioned in verse 18, and along with this individual Epaphroditus, they sent some gifts to meet his needs. Maybe some money, maybe some food, maybe some clothing. He sent to him the things that he needs, that he needed during that time. And so, in verses 10 through 19, Paul is expressing his thanks for their gift. And it's basically uh, what Paul is doing in this portion of Scripture. Now, remember, Paul, when he's writing this, you know, he's not living high on the hog, just, you know, partying. He is a, a, a Roman, he's, he's basically chained to a Roman soldier. He's a prisoner. He's chained to a Roman soldier. He's probably incarcerated in probably a small apartment in the city of Rome somewhere. Uh, he's in isolation. He was unable to just freely move about. He lost his freedom because of his work and ministry. And as a result of that, he can't minister, he can't work as much as he, he once did. Have you ever had your freedom um, taken away from you in some way? You know, you remember... You go to the, the, the park and you have a picnic and you have a uh, three-legged race. Okay, That's very frustrating for some people. I mean, you can't just go out there on a three-legged race and say, hey, I'm going to go and I'm going to go when I want to go and where I want to go. And you know, you just got to follow. You can't do that. You got to work together as a team. You're, all of a sudden, everything that you do with your legs is restricted. Well, that's what happened to Paul. He was restricted here for the cause of the gospel. And therefore, he was in much need. He was probably existing on a bare substance level, as any prisoner was in those days. And he was afflicted, being captive as a prisoner. 
And so in the midst of all that, the Philippians said, hey, we love this guy. We want to help him out. Let's send Epaphroditus and we'll send him some gifts and uh, some money and maybe some food. Something to help him out a little bit. To help him meet his necessities. But you stop and you think, this is probably the low part of Paul's life. By rational standards. I mean, he's chained to a, a Roman soldier. He's able only to reach out and touch probably a few friends that could find him. And, and when, once they found him, they were allowed in to visit him. He was anticipating a trial before Nero in which could result in his execution for spreading the gospel. So it was a very difficult time in the life of Paul. Some of you this morning may be going through a difficult time. Maybe financially, maybe work-related, maybe relationships, maybe your marriage, maybe with your kids. Maybe in your spiritual life. But you know what? Paul definitely understands that. Because that's where he was as he was writing these words. It was kind of a, a low ebb in Paul's life. And you know what? That's the way the Christian life is. Don't believe the lie that the Christian life is, oh, you're always riding the wave. You're always being blessed. Everything's just, you know, in abundance, overabundance. That's just the way life is. No, it's not. And we all know that not to be the case. There's a lot of people on TV that would disagree with me. See, my problem with them is, you know, as they're telling us that they need our money to support their ministry, but, and then God will bless them. Why doesn't God just bless them? Why do they have to ask anybody for anything? It doesn't make any sense to me. You know, basically they're after your dollar to put in their pocket to buy their castle on the hill somewhere. Um, Paul wasn't that way. He was existing here at the, at the basic level, but he was at a low point in his life. F.B. Meyer wrote this, Deprived of every comfort and cast as a lonely man on the shores of the great strange metropolis with every movement of his hand clanking a fetter and nothing before him but the lion's mouth or the sword. I mean, that's when you're at a low point in your life. And these dear Philippians said, you know what, we've got to encourage this brother. We want to reach out and touch him. And so they did. They sent Epaphroditus and they sent him gifts. And so what we're reading is basically an expression of his thanks, empowered by the Holy Spirit, of those gifts that he sent. Now, you remember, in the, earlier in the chapter, we're talking about spiritual stability. And sometimes God takes us through a period in our life, in our walk, where he's getting us stable. And it's not stable just to have a good time. He knows that we need that stability. And that's what happened to Paul here. Paul went through the whole section there, up to verse 9, basically, dealing with spiritual stability. How can you have a stable Christian walk? Why? Because you know what? It didn't get any better for Paul. It got worse. He was at a low point in his life. And sometimes that's how God works. In verse 11, look at what he says there. I have learned to be content. I have learned to be content. You know, through the experiences in life, sometimes the provision of God puts us in a process that sometimes doesn't feel too good. Sometimes the pressures close in from all around us. But God has a purpose in that. And the purpose in that is to allow us to learn contentment, just as Paul did. And here's truly a testimony of a contented man. You can honestly say the Apostle Paul was content. There's no better way to see what contentment looks like rather than to look at his life and look at his own distress, and look at the gifts that people uh, gave him. And basically, it breeds a perfect environment for contentment, and that's where Paul was at this point. That word, contentment, is kind of an interesting word. It goes back to the Greek term, which meant to be self-sufficient. It means to be satisfied, uh, to have enough. The term actually indicates a certain independence, it has the idea that you don't need any other aid or any other help. It was used in some places outside Scripture to refer to a person who supported himself without anyone's aid. And what Paul is saying here is, I've learned to be satisfied. I've learned to be sufficient in myself. And yet not in myself as myself, but in myself as I'm indwelt with the risen Lord. We have nothing in and of ourselves. 
But in Christ, we have all things. And so he had come to this point where he's dealing with contentment, spiritual contentment. Now, when you think of self-sufficiency, you think, well, this, you know, is that right? Should we be self-sufficient? It's not talking about the kind of the stoic self-sufficiency that we find in the Greek culture of the day. See, the Stoics believed that this whole idea of contentment was when you reached a certain point of almost indifference. You were indifference to everything. And then, only then, would you be content. One ancient writer wrote this, <coughs> Begin with a cup or a household utensil. If it breaks, say, I don't care. Go to the horse or a pet dog. If anything happens to it, say, I don't care. Go, go to yourself, and if you're hurt or injured in any way, just say, I don't care. And if you go on long enough, and if you try hard enough, you'll come to a state when you can walk your nearest and dearest, you can watch your nearest and dearest suffer and die and say, you know what, I don't care. And that's true. I've met people like that. They don't care about anything. That's not contentment, beloved. That's indifference. There's a big difference. See, the Stoics made of the heart a desert, kind of a, 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 a place of just nothing. Their hearts were, were bare, and they called that peace. We're not talking about that. He doesn't talk here about passionless carelessness. He's not talking about the indifference that they were dealing with, some of them, in the Greek culture of the day. He's talking about true sufficiency in Christ, being content in Christ. Now once again in verse 12, he goes on and he says, I've learned the secret <coughs> of being content. I know how to be abased and I know how to abound everywhere in all things. I have learned both to be full and to be hungry, both to abound and to suffer need. It's a fascinating verb, it, 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 that, that, that idea of having learned contentment or learning the secret of contentment. It's actually borrowed from the mystery religions of the day. And uh, when they were being initiated into pagan cults, they held certain secrets. And um, they were only for those initiated to know those secrets. And that's kind of what Paul is doing. He's borrowing that word from a pagan culture and he's saying, hey, I know a different secret. I know a different a secret of what it means to be content in Christ. And he says, I've been initiated into the secrets of contentment. I've learned the secret of living a contented life. Verse 7, truly the peace of God was his portion. Verse 9, if you look at that, uh, truly the God of peace was his portion. Um, he was experiencing peace. In verse 6, he was anxious for nothing. This was a satisfied man. He was adequate. He had enough. He was sufficient. So you say, well, why is Paul content. Look at his circumstances and why is he okay with that? A, a sane man would not feel that way. Well, what's the secret? Well, that's what he's going to share with us. That's what he's going to basically, in the coming verses, show us how we can ask ourselves, you know what, can we honestly stop and say, in whatever circumstance I find myself in, Lord, I'm content. Most of us can't. But you know what? Paul could. He truly could. He could truly say, I'm content no matter what. I'm, I'm perfectly at peace. I'm satisfied. You say, well, isn't that being complacent? No. It doesn't mean you don't try harder and to do better. He's not talking about that. But let's give us a couple building blocks into this foundation of contentment so we can see more clearly what Paul is, is trying to get across to us. Look at verse 10. He says, But I rejoice in the Lord greatly that now at last your care for me has flourished again. Surely, though surely uh, you did care, but you lacked opportunity. Building block number one there, it's in your outline, uh, is a confidence in God's providence. A confidence in God's providence. Now you have to understand a little little bit of a, a background here. Ten years have passed since the, the this... The, the last Philippian gift was sent to Paul. Ten years. 
Ten years since he arrived in Philippi. Ten years since he preached the gospel there. Ten years since he was thrown in jail. Ten years since the earthquake released all the prisoners. Ten years since the Philippian jailer was converted to Christ and all his household. Do you remember all that? Ten years since he moved um, from there to Thessalonica and the Philippians gave him some support. Ten years since he left Macedonia for Achaia, the cities of Athens and Corinth. And then the Philippians sent him another gift after he had left. Ten years since that last expression of their love. I mean, he was the founder of their church. They had a, a love bond for him, as any church would. But for ten years, there had been no support. And you know what? That was all right with Paul. He understood that. And he says, you know what? It wasn't because you weren't concerned. He wants them to understand. I'm okay with that. It was because you lacked what? What's it say there? Opportunity, right? At the end of the verse. You just didn't have the opportunity. The word is karyos. It means season. You never had a time. You never had an opportunity. Not chronological time. He's not talking about that. You never had that moment when it all came together. Where I was there and you were there and God provided. And, you know, those moments are there in history. Well, it didn't happen up until this point. We don't know why it didn't happen, but clearly it didn't. We don't know whether it was their poverty or whether the fact that um, they didn't know what Paul's needs were. Maybe they couldn't locate Paul. Who knows? But for some reason, they hadn't sent him any support for nearly 10 years. And he simply says to them, you know what? You didn't have an opportunity to do that. I don't hold that against you. It's okay. I don't reprimand you for that. That's, I understand fully. You had no opportunity for that until recently. And then he says... But I, what? Rejoiced. Well, when, when, when Epaphroditus came after ten years with a gift from the Philippians, that was a very happy moment for Paul. He says, I rejoiced in the Lord greatly. But now at last, after ten years, his joy was, was a real expression of love. It almost indicates that after a long wait, I've been waiting for this, and finally it's here. It says, you've revived your concern for me. The word is, has the idea of something blooming again. Um, your care for me has flourished again. It has the idea of something that's withered up and then has come back. Have you ever had that experience in your gardens? I have them weekly almost. You know, my wife always tells me, you're killing my flowers. It's like, I thought there were weeds. Sorry, dear. <laughs> Weed whacker got a little bit out of control there. But um, I'm sure they'll grow back, and they usually do. But, you know, sometimes you have this, this potted plant, and we don't do well with plants in the house, and sometimes she'll buy something and bring it home, and, you know, it'll be by the kitchen sink or something, and I'm thinking, okay, I'll give it three days. It's going to be dead. You know, this, this is the way it works. It doesn't matter what kind of plant. Oh, this thing will never die. It dies. And usually it's due to the lack of one of us watering it or watering it too much or whatever. But, you know, the poor little thing, the little guy just shrivels up. You know, and, and there's been occasion when you've actually been able to take that shriveled up dead plant and you put some water and maybe some little bit of uh, soil in there or something, and the thing comes back to life. It's amazing. You know, usually I just throw it in the trash and I will just get another one, you know. But uh, uh, a lot of times that's the idea here is what he's talking about, something that has bloomed again. He says, your love for me has bloomed again. Uh, it's always been there, but it just didn't have the opportunity to show itself. And so he says in verse 10, you were concerned. You were concerned for me. I knew you were concerned all along. He doesn't hold that against him that he hasn't heard from him in 10 years. I know you're concerned, but you just didn't have the opportunity. And you say, well, what's the point here? I mean, wh why are you saying all this? The point is simply this. The Apostle Paul had a, a patient confidence in the providence of God. He had a patience, confidence in God's sovereign providence for his life. He wasn't there over the whole ten years just worrying. <gasps> Boy, why aren't they sending me anything, you know? 
They must not care anymore. And, you know, sometimes when, when things like that happen, we, we create a scenario in our own minds that's far from the truth. And Paul wasn't doing that. Because he realized that, you know what? God's in control here. I'm not. And you see that throughout his whole life. He was always waiting on the Lord in some fashion. He knew what it was to be in God's hands. And if God gave a proper season and a proper time and a proper opportunity and all those kind of avenues crossed at the right time, then wow, it all came together and Paul was blessed. But there was no panic in his heart. There was no need to manipulate people. There was no turning of the screws to get what he wanted. He was certain that God in due time would order the circumstances so that his needs would be met. And he knew there was nothing between him and the Philippians, even though he hadn't heard from them ten years. There was no conflict there. He said, basically, I'm just going to wait patiently on the Lord. And you know what? The Lord made it happen. Now, it's important to understand that a lot of people today don't understand the providence of a sovereign God. They just don't understand it. And I think until you understand what it means to trust in the providence of a sovereign God, <coughs> you're never going to be content. Ever. It's going to be something fleeting you the rest of your life. But when you understand that God is sovereign and He is ordering everything for His own holy purposes, and He's working all these things after the counsel of His will, and He is making all things work together for good, until you understand all those things, you'll be discontent. That's just the way it is. Because what happens? All of a sudden, we take the responsibility of organizing all those things. And we look after the order of our own will. And we're unwilling to trust in a holy God who's providing for us. And then we get frustrated because we can't control everything. And we don't get what we want in the end. And Paul here has an amazing contentment. And it's built on the idea here that there was never an opportunity given to the Philippians to share any of these gifts with them at that time. God never made it providentially possible for them to do that. See, if you believe that God is sovereign, and He is, and if you believe that God orders all the circumstances to accomplish His own holy purpose, and I do, then you know what? You can be content in anything because everything is under control. I don't know if you watch much news, but once in a while I'll be watching the news and, you know, you want to throw something at the TV. You know, these politicians, what are they doing now? You know, and you get angry and you get frustrated. It's like, oh, you know, or, you know, some judge makes some ruling and lets some person out of jail and out of prison and they go and, you know, molest or murder somebody else. I just get so angry with that kind of stuff. But I have to stop and say, wait a minute. You know what? Are, are we called as Christians to change this world politically? No, we're not. Don't get me wrong. We should do our duty. We have a free country. We should go to the polls and, and make the vote count. But the way we're going to change the world in which we live in and by the way, it's on a fast track downward, and that's not going to change. But what we can change is who goes down with it as God gives opportunity. We can share the gospel with those around us because I think that the way to change somebody is not to just give them a bunch of education or indoctrinate them with something, but to see God supernaturally transform their heart. Remember, we talked about last week or the week before that Christianity isn't addition. It's not like you're not a Christian and then, okay, now I'm going to add Jesus to my life. And so now I've got to do all this stuff that's involved with church. I go to church and pray and pray before meals and do my devotions and do all this stuff. And now for that makes me more holy. No, it doesn't. The only thing that makes you more holy is when you come to a point in your life when you realize, you know what? I don't have what it takes. I don't have the ability to save myself. See, you can go to church from now to the end of your life. If the reason you're coming to church is to save yourself, it's not going to work. Any church. You know, you can read your Bible 
every day for eight hours. If you're doing it because you think you're going to be saved by reading your Bible as a work, you're wrong. The Bible is very clear. It says that we're saved by grace. It's a work of God's grace in our life. He steps into a life that's discontent with their own life. They've hit bottom. They've bottomed out. And they realize, you know what? There's got to be something more to this life. And when you come to that point in life, you realize the only way is up. The only way is up. You cry out to a holy God and you say, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I have sinned before you. You're holy, I'm not. See, sometimes we like to make people think that we're holy. Don't we? We come to church and put the smile on, we got our Bible in our hand, you know, hey brother, how you doing? Oh, sister. We're all together on this. We're all on the same plane. We're all sinners. And that sin is a stench before a holy God. And there's only way out of that. You can't go give yourself a bath and then go back to God and say, oh, am I cleaned up yet? Remember when we were little, my one nephew used to hate to take baths. And he used to jump in. He'd like stick his big toe in and then run back to his mom. Am I clean yet? No. You know, he'd go back and this thing went on forever. It's like, just get in and get clean and then get it over with. You know, it's this big ordeal every time. Well, sometimes that's, we have that mentality with God. You know, we do all this stuff spiritually in our life. And we, we go back to God. Are we clean yet? The only thing that can make us clean is the blood of Christ. When we come to our wits end and we say, God, you know what? I can't do this on my own. None of us can. We have to trust in somebody bigger than ourselves. We have to trust in somebody totally holy, not just trying to be holy, and that's God. But you're never going to understand that. You're never going to learn that until you come to terms with God is in control of things. And I think that, that part of this, this point that, that we have to believe in a, in a sovereign God who's providing for us providentially, Paul was fully confident that God was in charge and that he would meet his needs. And you know what? Not only that, that he could order events to make those things happen. That God could. That's what's called providence. Providence is a term that indicates that God provides. It's connected to the term provide, obviously. God provides, but it, it really means more than that. It, it means that he orchestrates everything to accomplish his purpose. Let me show you what I mean by contrasting two things here. Basically, there's, there's, there's two basic ways that God can work, can act in the world today. Two basic ways. One is by miracle. The other one is by providence. If God wants to do something, let's say, in human society, where, of course, he's doing things all the time, but he has two opportunities to do it. One is by miracle. Well, what's a miracle? A miracle is this. Is when you, you have the flow of natural life, the natural course of things. You look around, and everything's you know, just going the way it should be. And all of a sudden, God steps in and supernaturally walls up both sides of the river and stops the flow, and he injects a miracle right there. Why? Because he's God and he can do it. It has no natural explanation. It has nothing to do with what is normal. He raises somebody from the dead. That's not normal. He heals somebody. That's not normal. But God can intervene in history and stop the flow of normal history to do a miracle. That's the God that we serve. And then when the miracle's over, he can set life back in, in motion once again. Just like stopping the Red Sea until the people could cross. Once they crossed, well, things went back to normal. See, he stops the natural course of things. He injects what is supernatural, and then he lets the flow go on again. That's a miracle. That's the invasion of the natural that, that causes the natural to cease and be invaded by the supernatural. Well, the second way that God can work in, in today is by providence. 
The way God acts is to take all these diverse elements of something that is normal and not just inject a miracle, but to take everything that's normal and orchestrate them to accomplish his own purpose, his own will. Now, if I ask you this morning, if you were God, now if you were God, neither one would be hard for you to just do that. But in our rational thinking, what would be harder to do? To just stop everything? Okay, I want a miracle here. Boom. Bam. Okay, go on with life. Or to sit back and say, okay, to make this happen, I'm going to have to orchestrate all these things. Obviously, no matter. Personally, I think providence is a bigger and better thing than, than even a miracle. It must be easy for God just to say, hold it, I want to do this. But you know what? It's a lot harder to say, I've got 50 billion circumstances that I've got to orchestrate in order to accomplish this one thing. That's providence. But when you come to understand that a sovereign God is not only sovereign by supernatural intervention, but he's also sovereign by natural orchestration. All of a sudden, you begin to step back and you realize, you know what, I have a little more confidence in this God, and I, and I can have a little more contentment that he is going to be my provider. See, a contented person is a person who knows that God is ordering everything for his own holy purpose. All of a sudden, then you can stop back, st step back and say, you know what, I can be content in this. I know that the God of the universe is in charge of this. You ever met somebody who's just dealt with a tragic blow? Something tragic happens in their life. Could be them personally or their family. And God gives them that sense of contentment, even in that circumstance. And you're almost shocked when you talk to them, like... Aren't you, you know, shouldn't you be, you know, grieving or shouldn't you be dealing a little more with this? Maybe you should go see a counselor or whatever. And their answer is no. You know what? For whatever reason, God allowed this to happen. And for whatever reason, God's allowing me to be okay with this at this point in time. That's the grace of God in somebody's life. It's confidence in God's providence. And Paul here is saying, you know what, I'm not fr frustrated with you Philippians. I know you haven't been around for 10 years. But you know what, you didn't have the opportunity. Which means, you know what, God never made it happen. So I'm okay with it. And if God didn't make it happen, then it's not going to happen. If God wanted it to happen, it would happen. Say, that sounds kind of fatalistic. It's not, it's not fatalism at all. It's called confidence in God's providence. Read the story of Joseph. One of the great stories of God's orchestration of providentially creating circumstances to affect his own purpose in somebody's life. Read the story of Esther, another evidence of God's providence. The story of Ruth, another evidence of God's providence. Over and over and over again, we see God's providence pushing its way to the top. And Paul was fully confident that, you know what? He wasn't in charge. God was in charge. As long as God was in charge, then God was ordering everything for his own purpose. Everything was going to be fine. So Paul was, hey, you know what? If they burn me at the cross, they burn me at the cross. You're never going to know a contented heart until you believe that our sovereign God is providentially caring for us all. And once you come to that conclusion, you know what? It affects the way you live. It really does. I said it was practical. Well, it is practical. As long as you feel that things are out of control, as long as you look at your life and go, oh my gosh, what's going to happen next? I just don't understand. You're going to feel discontent. Because you're going to be frustrating yourself in the process, trying to, you know, it's like the spinning plates. You ever see those guys that spin plates? I don't know how they do that. It's amazing. But, you know, sooner or later, they come crashing down. And some of us in our world, that's the way we are. We're all out there. we got our plates. How many can I get? 
And God's saying, you know what? Let go of the plates. Let me take care of the plates. I'm perfectly capable. I'm God. I'm the one that created you. Hello? I'm the one that created everything around you. And you're, you're sitting there worrying about your little problem as if I couldn't deal with it when the time comes for me to deal with it. See, the problem is we believe the lie that once you become a Christian, once you become you know, a member of the church or whatever, then everything is supposed to be a bed of roses. Everything is supposed to just smell fine for the rest of your life. After all, you're a Christian now. You're living in a Christian nation. It used to be a Christian nation. So, I mean, you know, God should just bless us all the time, right? Whatever happened to, you know what, I've saved you so that you could fellowship in His sufferings, i.e. the sufferings of Christ. Christianity is not to be some pie-in-the-sky experience. You know? And it's, it's, it's that, that whole thinking is kind of even got its point down to even when we come to church. I mean, our, our whole problem with, with church today is, you know what, we're making judgment calls moment by moment. I found myself doing it this morning, sitting right over there worshiping, thinking, okay, I don't even know this song. Why are we singing this song? You know what? It's like, that's stupid. Who cares? By the end of the song, I kind of liked it. But you know what? None of us like to be, you know, something fresh. That just kind of goes against us. We like to come do our little thing and everything's fine. And we have to stop and say, that's not right. You know, sometimes God has to interject something fresh into our life. And it's not because we're asking for it. It's because He's providentially in control of things and He knows that we need it. And then some of you are probably saying, well, this guy doesn't tell enough jokes. You're making a judgment call. You're saying, oh, that's, you know. See, and, and that's the, the problem. See, we should be here this morning not to just hear someone speak, not to hear music, not to, you know, pop our head in and say, hey, did church this week, check it off, you know. God owes me, okay, God, I'm waiting for that promotion, you know. That's not how it works. We should be here because we're called to be here by obedience as Christians. God says, I, I want you to be in a house of God on Sundays so that you can be built up in your faith. So that you can fellowship with other believers, so you can join with them in prayer and, and, and experience what the real Christian life is all about. It's not just about doing church. See, sometimes we grow content in the wrong way, and it turns into complacency. Come and do church, kind of leave, and nothing's changed, nothing's affected us one way or the other. We need to be trusting that, you know what, whatever is coming into our life at this point in time, it's by the hand of God. God is allowing it somehow, because God could surely prevent it. Somebody asked me after 9-11, how could your God allow those people to crash into the... I said, I don't know, but he did. Because <laughs> I know for, for sure that if God wanted to prevent 9-11, he could have prevented it. But he didn't do it. He didn't do it. Well, all those innocent people, well... You know what? There's no such thing as an innocent person, first of all. We're all sinners. <laughs> I mean, that, that's hard to hear, but that's true. And we need to kind of cut through all that stuff and get to the, the, the real issue here. First building block of contentment is trusting in a, a sovereign, providential God that cares for you. He loves you. He provided His Son for you on a cross. So that you could put your faith and trust not in yourself to clean yourself up, but put your faith and trust in, in Him, in Christ, to save you. Paul was content because he had confidence in the providence of God. Secondly, we're not going to go through all five of these, so just if you're sitting there going, he'll never get to the end, you know. I said we wouldn't finish it this week, so just relax, you know, we'll be out there in a couple minutes. Um, the second thing is, 
you can find contentment because of the satisfaction with a little. Satisfaction with little. Look at verse 11. He says, not that I speak in regard to need, for I have learned in whatever state I am to be content. This is kind of a, a quick change from verse 10. Uh, he says, not that I speak from one. In other words, oh, I'm rejoiced that your, your gift came. Uh, I rejoiced so much when it came. Not that I needed it. Not that I'm speaking out of my own want. For I've learned in, to be content in whatever circumstances I'm in. That's what he's saying. Well, what's he telling us there? He's, he's telling us that, you know what, I can be satisfied with a little. I don't have to have a lot. I mean, he was a prisoner. He didn't, you know, he wasn't eating filet mignon every night. I mean, it was it was bare substance, and he was in in his needs were great indeed. But he didn't acknowledge any discontent because he knew that's where God had him at that point in time, and so he was at peace because his trust was in a providence of a sovereign God, and he was so satisfied with the very little that it didn't matter that he was a prisoner. It didn't matter that he was chained to a, a Roman soldier. You know, it, it didn't matter that he couldn't go out and minister the way he wanted to. That really didn't touch his contentment at all. He was satisfied with a little. And you know what? I mean, we're living in a culture that is just the opposite. It's just totally the opposite. And like I said earlier, the more we have, the more discontent we are. A lot of times, some of the, the most miserable, wretched people in our society are rich people. I don't know why, but that's the way it works. And they'll tell you so. A lot of them are insecure because they think everybody's after their money. There's no contentment there. I mean, the attitude of people today is that their needs can never be met. Ever. It's a consuming passion that every need has to be met. And we're not satisfied with a little at all. We have developed this need that's, that's number one, and it's incredible. And it's, it's like a, a never-ending thing. Roy Maslow, another psychiatrist, basically humanistic backgrounds, believe that since there's no God, that man is ultimate. And all the existence uh, simply is not to satisfy God, but to satisfy who? If man is ultimate, then why do we exist? We exist to satisfy who? Man, ourselves. That's, that's where this comes from. And so we're going to spend the rest of our lives meeting whose needs? Our own. See, that's fine if it's just maybe food and clothing, doesn't, but it doesn't stop there. The culture we live in is so different from what Paul lived in. Paul, Paul was obviously satisfied with so little food and clothing, a place to sleep, and that's exactly what the Bible you know, says. Um, be content with your wages, be content with food and clothing, godliness, contentment with great gain. His great gain and realize that the one who is the, 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 all of your resources, he will never leave you nor forsake you. Paul was there. That's where he's at. But that's not where our society is. That's not where we're at. And when he says there, not that I speak from want, what he's saying is I really don't have any needs that aren't met. Maybe they aren't met as fully as I think they should be. But you know what? My God says he'll provide for my needs, and I, I have faith in that. He's so sensitive to this, uh, it's amazing. In, in 1 Corinthians chapter 9, he says this, you can just listen. He says, I have a right to live of the gospel because I preach the gospel. Which means, what Paul is saying is, he has a right to make his living off preaching the gospel and that he should be supported by, you know, whoever's willing to support him. 
He talks about soldiers in that context being supporters as they fight wars and, and uh, you know, preachers should be supported when they preach messages and so, so forth. But then he says this, but look, I'm not going to take anything from you because I don't want to charge you for what I do. So he says, I'm going to work with my own hands. I don't want to make the gospel chargeable to you. I don't want to cloud your thinking about my motive, motives or whatever, so I'm going to just work. That's what I want to do. In Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 9, he says, You recall, brethren, our labor and hardship, working night and day, so as not to be a burden to any of you. We proclaimed to you the gospel of God. So here comes this preacher preaching to the Thessalonians, and in order not to have them support him, he works them night and day. He works night and day so he doesn't have to have them support. In, in, in chapter 11 of 2 Corinthians, in verse 8 and 9, he says, I robbed other churches, in other words, taking gifts from them, taking wages from them to serve you. When other churches supported Paul, he saw it as robbery. It's kind of strange in our culture and our thinking. He really didn't like to do it. He says, when I was present with you and was in need, I was not a burden to anyone. For when the brethren came from Macedonia, they fully supplied my need. And in everything, I kept myself from being a burden to you and will continue to do so. I don't ever want to be a burden. I'm content with the very little. Doesn't sound like a, he'd make a very good televangelist. I mean, this guy isn't hesitant about asking for money and support. Why? The reason he's not hesitant, it's not a hard thing for him, because he realized, you know what? He serves a God that, that, that's caring for him providentially. It's not an issue. It takes it right off the table. He was so confident that God would meet his needs, and because he didn't want people to maybe misunderstand his motives, he was satisfied with little. He was content. And he says there, I have learned... I have learned, he points to the fact that his lesson is something that's done. He's learned this the hard way, but he's got it down. He doesn't have to relearn it. Sometimes we have to relearn lessons over and over in life. Paul learned this lesson. He said, I learned to be content, to be satisfied, to be self-sufficient in Christ, whatever circumstances I'm, I'm in. He's not denying that he's going through a difficult time. He's not denying that he's facing hardship. He's simply content that that's where God has him at this point because God's providentially caring for his soul. How different that is from what we think today. I mean, the whole, the whole culture that we're raised in today, and I think it's mainly because of, of television. Not that I'm a, you know... The television's the Antichrist, but I'm just saying, you know, I watch TV, but you know what? I also watch commercials when I'm watching TV. And when I watch those commercials, what happens? It breeds discontent in my life. That's what commercials are supposed to do. Any marketing person will tell you, if you watch a commercial and you don't want to go out and buy or, or you're interested in the product that they're selling, there's something wrong with the commercial. The goal of television is to buy you things, so the primary issue on TV is the commercials. It's not what goes on in between. That's just kind of little flowers to make it look all nice. If the program doesn't get you there, you see the commercial. When the program is off the air, the whole idea of that commercial sticks in your mind. So the next time you're in the supermarket and you're walking down the detergent aisle and you see whatever, boom, you buy it. That's how it works. But it creates this need-based society that our needs could never be met. Our wants always exceed our needs. You know that? Our wants always exceed our needs. That's, that's a hard thing to grapple with today. But Paul wants us to clearly understand that, you know what? He knew what it meant to deal with a little bit, small quantity. And he was okay with that because he was trusting 
He had his confidence in God's providential care for him. And I just want to ask you this morning, is that what you're trusting in? Is that what your trust is? Are you okay with whatever happens in life? Because your trust and your faith is in the sovereign God who cares for your soul. If it's not there, it needs to be. I mean, what if you walk out of this building and something happened and you, you went blind? Well, you know what? As a believer, God clearly allowed that to happen to you. What if you walked out of this building and you got hit by a car and you lost a limb? Not a pleasant thing, but you know what? God clearly allowed that into your life for a purpose. What if you went to the doctor next week and they diagnosed you with whatever? See, as a believer, you should have that foundation of trust and faith in a God who cares and loves you. He's not going to allow something. Nothing gets around him. Do you understand that? It's not... They have a commercial. I don't even know who it is. But... The power of TV, okay? Some of you remember this. It's like a guardian angel guy. You, have you seen this commercial? Some of you are nodding your heads. Some of you don't want to nod your heads because then you'll know you watch TV. But anyway, it's this guardian commercial, guardian angel, and it's a commercial about this, and this lady's doing things, or guy's doing something, and, and things happen to this poor guy that he's supposed to be being the guardian angel over. And, uh, you know, and finally, something with a credit card. I think it's Capital One or something. You know, what's in your wallet or one of those. But it's so funny because it's like the, the guardian angel actually misses some of these things. And bad things happen to these people. And he's like, oh, what was I thinking? You know, I must turn my back. or Well, God's not that way. Okay, we, we serve a God who is, is fully sufficient to care for us. God is not going to allow one thing to happen to you. Not one thing outside of his providential care. And you talk to people who've had critical things in their life, whether it's deaths or disease or whatever, and more than not, they'll tell you, you know what, I didn't like it when I was going through it, but I would never, never go back. I would never go back because God did such a work in my life through that hardship. There was no other way that God could do it. So I ask you this morning, what are you trusting in? Are you trusting in a God who cares for us in a sovereign way, in a providential way? And are we content with little? I, I mean, I already know the answer to that because I can answer it. No, I'm not content with little. I want more of everything. That's our flesh. But you know what? When you put it in perspective, when you stop and you think, you know what? In the end, when they bury me in that, that coffin or that grave, whatever it is, Exactly. You can't take it with you. So having the newest car on the market is not a big deal. Having the biggest house on the block is really not that big of a deal anymore. Having the, 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 the best position at work or the best parking spot or, or the best restaurant or, or it doesn't make any difference. Because all of a sudden you've, you've crossed the line from, from this mortality into the eternal. That's what death does. When we, when we die, we, we go from being mortal beings to, to beings that are going to live forever. The question you've got to ask is, where are you going to live? One of two places, heaven or hell. Heaven or hell. And I pray this morning that your answer would be heaven because of the grace and the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ. It's the only way you're going to get there. Anyway, let's close in a word of prayer. Father, we thank you for your word this morning. and Lord, we ask that you would teach us more on a daily basis how that we can trust in a sovereign God who provides for us in ways sometimes we can't even fathom. Lord, I thank you for the Apostle Paul and I thank you for his example that even though in the midst of hardship, in the midst of trials, in the midst of just even personal pain, probably, physical pain. He was able to say that, hey, I'm okay with this. This is where God has me at this time. And I pray for everybody here this morning that, you know, you just didn't wander in here this morning by mistake. 
You may have wished you did, but you didn't. <laughs> uh, you're here because God wanted you to hear something. God wanted you to read something. God wanted you to hear a song. God wanted you to meet somebody here this morning. I pray that that person that you would meet is, is himself through the Lord Jesus Christ. I pray that if there's anybody here this morning who's yet to put their faith, their trust in Christ alone as their Savior. Lord, I ask that you would do that work of drawing them, preparing the soil of their heart to be broken so that you can give them a new heart, so that you can show them what real love and real mercy and real grace really looks like. And cry out to Him right now just through prayer. Just, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. Change me. Make me the person that You want me to be. Help me to turn away from my sin and cling to You. That's the, that's the prayer God will answer. And I pray that He would do that work in your heart this morning. Father, we thank You for Your Word. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.